Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. We have Don Llewellyn back on the show today to follow up on some of what we discussed last time. But before we get to Don, I want to thank Emmett Jordan, a rancher in Briggsdale, Colorado, for writing in to suggest some further exploration on the topic of nutrition and ranch management and genetics. Uh, He points out that shifting the gestation period so that calving coincides with more favorable weather and more importantly, so that cow peak nutrient demand more closely matches what nature provides, at least in most of the Northern Hemisphere, uh, seems to make both biological and economic sense, and I would agree. Uh, He also suggested touching on the cost of protein, uh, specifically the use of urea as a supplement and what that costs, and uh, discuss a little bit the balancing act between minimizing inputs and input costs, and trying to help the herd you've got perform well enough to make a living. Uh, So we will get to that before we end today. Uh, Emmett, I really appreciate you listening regularly and taking the time to write. Uh, And as somebody who gets paid public money to think instead of uh, produce food, I really appreciate people who produce real wealth, things that we eat and wear. Uh, As the old Alabama song says, uh, they keep this country turning around. Uh, Culture doesn't last long if it doesn't value farmers. So we will get to your questions before the end of the episode. Uh, Don Llewellyn, for those who didn't listen to episode 20, is a ruminant nutritionist who is a colleague of mine here at Washington State University Extension. Uh, Don, welcome back. Uh, Thanks, Tip. It's great to be here. I've said before on the podcast that what attracted me to rangeland science was the integrated nature of the discipline. It, It is a science of relations. And I think nowhere do we see that so clearly than in animal nutrition. Range animals are mostly dependent on what nature provides. And if we have to spend too much to make up the difference between what nature provides and what the animal needs, uh, there's no profit left. Uh, For those who are just now tuning into the podcast, which we started last October, I would refer you to episode four with Fred Provenza. Uh, where we discuss developing a herd or a flock of animals that are adapted to their environment, that are able to remain healthy and reproduce year after year in the environment that you have available to you. I would also recommend listening to Jack Southworth. Uh, I can't remember which episode number that was. A rancher in eastern Oregon, uh, and he talks about flexing herd size and nutritional inputs to balance production and cost, recognizing that you know you can you can push match the animal to the environment to the point that uh, you're a little too rough on your animals, but you can also spend too much money. All right. Uh, Don, as we discussed last time, has been involved for years with research on the use of low-quality forages, and we noted in the last episode that that if large ungulates were not able to digest low-quality feed, they would not last long because in most parts of the world, Uh, where the natural plant community is grasses and shrubs, uh, the protein value for much of the year and the available forage is below the 7% that's generally considered uh, the the necessary minimum for maintaining a mature female that's not lactating. Uh, 
Uh, granted that research on diet selection at the micro scale, both in livestock and in wildlife, shows that animals select individual plants and plant parts that meet their requirements. Uh, and those plants and plant parts are typically higher in nutrition than the average of the plant community. So if, if we went out and clipped uh, 20 random samples and analyzed that forage, it would be lower in forage test values than if we collected what the animals were biting off and, and consuming. Uh, the animals are, are smart enough to, to go get what they need. Uh, but Don, you say that they're not just picking out good stuff. They're also getting more out of what looks like bad feed stuff because we're not actually feeding the cow directly. Uh, we're feeding the rumen microbes and they make that available. Is that right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, and you know, you're, your thoughts are well taken when you talk about diet selection. Um, we did some studies when I was at Kansas State University as a graduate student, and we looked at those those clippings versus uh, the the samples that we actually took out of the room, and, and there was about a oh say three percentage points increase in in uh, the crude protein content of those samples that came out of the room and versus what was clipped, and so that. The, there is a method to the to the way that these animals are are out there grazing and and selecting and looking looking for uh, uh, looking for the advantages of that of that good forage. In our last interview, you talked about how the action of the rumen microbes, and I I guess I'm not a nutritionist, but uh, my understanding is that more specifically, the enzymes that are produced by the rumen microbes that are able to break down cellulose. Uh, when we take care of the rumen microbes, when we feed them properly, uh, those enzymes break down fiber in what would otherwise be low-quality forages uh, that would test really low in crude protein and even low in total digestible nutrients, which is the what most people are familiar with as the the forage test proxy for energy. Uh, and we we briefly mentioned in the last episode a concept called fetal programming which is the idea that how uh, mother cows are managed nutritionally during pregnancy affects the performance of their offspring, uh, not just immediately after calving, but, but clue through their life all the way out. You know, if we're talking about animals that follow a conventional pathway to entering the, the human food chain, you know, that could be 18 to 24 months. Uh, it, it's as if their bodies have been programmed in utero to behave in certain ways or not behave in certain ways. I'm not a nutritionist, so I'm uh, flying blind, but this is fascinating stuff, and it's been in the news for the past two or three years. Uh, what is fetal programming? Well, Tip, uh, uh, another term for it is epigenetics, and, it, and it's essentially how, how environment has an effect on how animals are able to express their their genetic potential. And so, so really this all comes back to, to uh, we need to be looking at our, at our production systems, uh, actually just as that, as a systems approach that so that's been so much in the, in the agricultural news, as opposed to uh, looking at, at our management of our cows in a piecemeal fashion. Uh, we have to look at look at uh, the nutrition and the health and 
and genetics and all and all of these things as one as one big package and in and in doing so uh fetal programming uh takes this a, a step further in looking back at what that mama cow is consuming at various stages during her her gestation uh, anytime after conception until that calf is born and how that affects the fetus and then and in essence what she does uh, or what she consumes and what she's doing during the time of of pregnancy is going to have a an effect on the calf uh, early in life as well as throughout their life or it has the potential to be that it be that anyway right uh, you you have written in an extension publication that you did with Sarah Smith and Mindu that uh, a whole host of traits that are uh, that we could measure in uh, a mother cow's offspring are are known to be affected uh, very much long term throughout the animal's life by the stimuli that the mother receives during pregnancy. Uh, those include muscle and fat development, which is you know that's 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 what people make money on in the cattle business. Uh, calf survivability, growth, carcass characteristics, uh, reproductive success, animal health. That sounds like pretty much everything. So uh, that's why people are saying this fetal programming epigenetics is a big deal. Absolutely, and and let's start out talking about it by first saying that we always want to consider that we. We're going to provide adequate nutrition and try to meet the the uh, nutritional requirements. But as we talk about fetal programming, we're in no way trying to make the point that we're going to try to overfeed these cows uh, in order to get a response out of the fetus. <clears throat> That's not the point. But there are certain times during the uh, during fetal development that are that are really important. Uh, for the development of the calf. Right. So does that work? You mentioned not trying to overfeed. Does that work both directions? In other words, if we, uh, if we underfeed or we provide poor nutrition to the mother, that that can have a long-term negative effect in, I guess, a corresponding way that good nutrition or uh, adequate nutrition has a positive effect? That's true. And they've even... Uh, some of the early studies in this area even looked at humans and followed followed humans that had whose whose mothers had had uh, nutritional restrictions for whatever reason during pregnancy, and then they followed these children uh, into adulthood and and uh, throughout their lives and found that there was you know. Uh, differences in the health and heart disease and diabetes and all of all of these things because of or they they had tied that back to stresses on the on the on the fetus but uh, let let's talk just a little bit about fetal development of calves and uh, and at certain times during during uh, uh, the fetal stages or during gestation and sure. how that might affect uh, later performance on these calves. So, so for instance, uh, in, in our in our fact sheet, uh, we we have a, and you may want to link this to your to your uh, uh, podcast. But 
um, early early in uh, gestation, uh, there's a there's an increase in the formation of muscle fibers, and of course we we understand that that muscle is what we're trying to produce on on our on our feedlot steers and feedlot heifers or whatever, and so that's really important for the number of muscle fibers that are developed. Okay, so we got to have a number of muscle fibers in order to have adequate muscle in these cattle. As we move toward later stages in gestation, uh, there's the muscle fibers uh, can be affected by as they uh, can increase in size. Okay, adequate nutrition will will uh, make it so that these muscle fibers uh, adequately increase in size. Same thing toward the later, the last uh, trimester of pregnancy, formation of fat cells. How how that ties back is is that that if you if we have more fat cells forming during later pregnancy because we have adequate nutrition, then that can translate later on into intramuscular fat, which is obviously one of our our factors along with maturity that that uh, that determines quality grade in these cattle. And those are all fixed. So you. You're saying after the animal is born, you have no more uh, development of new fat cells or new muscle fibers? Yes, this is how, how these fibers, uh, we're talking either in increasing in numbers or increasing in size. Say with uh, muscle and fat, you're saying that muscle is developed in early gestation, fat, uh, fat cells are developed late gestation. Uh, I mentioned before, these are the things that pay the bills. We're raising meat animals and the meat that we eat is skeletal muscle and it's not worth eating unless there's some fat in it that that affects both tenderness and uh, flavor. And I can see how uh, our traditional understanding of genetics will hardwire or you know put put sideboards on the potential development of an animal. Um, but but how does the mother's nutrition affect the animal's ability to produce muscle and fat? What's the mechanism there? If we go back to to some of the earlier studies back in 2007, 2008, 2009, they showed that with adequate protein supplementation of beef cows, and these were uh, in some Nebraska studies, were some of the early ones, that that uh, those cows that were adequately supplemented third trimester, uh, you know, with various protein cubes or uh, some, you know, some of them were 42% cubes, some are 28% cubes. But what they saw later on down the road in, is that the calves that were in utero at the time that the supplementation took place, they had increased weaning weights. Uh, it, uh, hot carcass weights were increased, and of course, this all translates into saleable product. Um, and then, uh, uh, more than one study showed showed both of those things. And then uh, later on, some of those studies showed that there was an uh, actually an increase in the marbling scores, which also translates into uh, higher uh, higher quality grades as well. That, of course paying on the uh, pricing on the grid and so forth translates into uh, uh, 
uh, more income for on a on a per steer basis based on the grade. So let me make sure I understand what that research was. The mother cows had some had uh, just whatever the available forage was. A different set of mother cows had a supplement appropriate to 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 make what they're getting match up with what they need. And then the calves from those two different sets of mother cows were on the same feed and came up with different performance. Is that right? Yeah. So those calves were, those calves were followed and, and the, the whole, the, the whole point of it is, is that all other things remain constant, yeah. tying it back to that mama cow's supplementation that had an effect on and and the astounding part of it is is when you th- when you think about the third trimester of of gestation for a cow then that calf is born and so that's what 7 8 months later so then you're 10 or 11 months down the road then that calf may go into a backgrounding or a stalker system so that puts you 13 or 14 months down the road ever since that ever since that cow was or that calf got the benefit of the supplementation in utero and then that calf goes to the feed yard and then you're looking at depending on how long how how heavy the calf was when they came in and how how long they were fed you know you're looking at 18 or more months after that small amount of protein supplementation was delivered to the mother cow uh, to not to overfeed her but to help her meet her protein requirements for the for the type of low quality forage she was on in the wintertime. And that had had an appreciable effect on the performance of her calf and just tying it all back to just the supplementation of the cow. And and that's that's pretty incredible when you really think about it, that uh, a small amount of protein uh, just to, for helping the cow meet the requirements can have that effect so far later on down down the road in life and 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 we can take that on on the heifer side on the uh, on the breeding heifer side there was some studies that showed that uh, the that the pregnancy rates in those in those first calf heifers were increased by 13 or 14 percent I think it was actually 13 percent. And so when you consider the cost of development of uh, or of the cost of development of a replacement heifer or the cost of purchasing a replacement heifer, if if you can get an another 13 uh, calves into production out of every hundred and and thinking about the cost you have. Uh, invested in those cattle. Those are big numbers. 13, those are big numbers when you when you uh, when you can have that kind of impact. Huh. And so so it's not just the steers. It's it's on the it's on the the female side as well. Yeah, there are a lot of implications of that mechanism. What other aspects of animal performance are affected by the nutrition of the mother? You know, I mentioned the the protein supplementation of the uh, and the fetal programming for reproduction with on the heifer side. Um, some of the early studies were a little more inconclusive on health, uh, but 
um, there's there's some inkling, at least in the in those studies, that uh, appropriate supplementation of the of the mother during gestation may uh, help from the standpoint of of uh, resistance to disease later on. Uh, like I say, that was a little bit more inconclusive. There were some studies that showed showed a difference, some studies that maybe didn't. But it's sure sure something that uh, that bears more more investigation for sure. Hmm. But I mean, when you think about BRD being one of our our biggest problems and our biggest cost, I mean, if we can if we can appropriately feed that mother cow and and a and a percentage of uh, uh, or there's a lower percentage of cattle that are treated for BRD when they go to backgrounding or in the feedlot or even, or even at the cow calf level, uh, you know, that, that can be a, a significant cost savings as well. Yeah. So how would you recommend people manage cows to predispose their calves for optimum nutritional performance? Uh, anything beyond just making sure the cow gets what she needs? Like I say, if I'm going to make a recommendation, it's going to be relative to, to knowing what your cows need uh, at various points of time in the production cycle. And, and you know, ev- everybody really needs to have, have their nutrient requirement tables at home and be, and be looking at those, you know. We, 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 don't, we don't worry so much about these cows uh, at turnout, say, April, May, June, but later in the summer, when those cows are, uh, especially in eastern Washington, when the grass is dry and the and uh, everything's going dormant and so forth, our proteins uh, and 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 the amount of energy we can deliver of that of that low quality grass is gets fairly limiting. And so later in the summer, we need to start thinking about what those nutrient requirements are, and if we have requirement tables that we can look at, we could get a fairly good handle on, on, uh, on what those cows need. The other thing producers, I think, uh, I, I always try to make the point is, uh, is that we need to be able to estimate fairly well what those cattle are going to eat of, of a various types of, uh, forages. You know, we know that if it's a really low quality forage, uh, like say wheat straw, they're out pasture wheat straw, or you're feeding wheat straw after harvest or whatever, they're going to eat less than 1% of their body weight and dry matter of that because it's just so, so low quality and high, highly lignified and, and has the anti-quality components in it. And, and they just won't eat much. And so then, then as the, as our forages or, or harvested feeds get better, we, we know that there's different thresholds about how much these cattle are are expected to eat because we can't tell what we're delivering unless we can make a fairly good estimate uh, of of what those uh, those cattle are actually consuming. And so then we can compare what they're consuming with the requirement tables and get a pretty good handle on what we should be doing for supplementation. Speaking of supplementation, we'll come back to the question from. Uh, from Eastern Colorado, 
Uh, urea is something that's commonly been used for a protein supplement. Uh, is that a good idea? Is it uh, something that's unnatural for a ruminant? Uh, does it work? How does that? How does the cost compare with something like uh, alfalfa hay? So urea is one of our sources of what we call non-protein nitrogen. Another one is called biuret. Um, and it has its place in, in, uh, in uh, cattle rations. We, we want to be careful with urea if we're, we, we can't feed as much if we're talking about a low quality forage than we can in say a higher energy diet like we'd have in a backgrounding diet or a, or a feedlot type diet. And the reason for that is, is because usually a little supplemental energy goes a long way in helping the rumen microbes to utilize urea. And, and essentially what urea is doing is it's just providing a source of nitrogen for the rumen microbes. You know, we talked in our last, uh, the last time I was on the, on the podcast with you about uh, that the rumen microbes have a, have a nutrient requirement just like the cow does. And so, so the, the, um, they have a nutrient requirement for nitrogen and, and a lot of our forage digesters can use ammonia as their, as their source of nitrogen in order to, to make protein in, into their bacterial cells. And then of course that becomes uh, microbial protein for uh, to meet part of the protein requirement of the cow, and so so urea works works pretty well as long as we use it as a tool and as long as we provide whatever we need along with it. For instance, for for example, a little energy to uh, to help the microbes utilize it. Now, if we overload the rumen with urea. Then we get too much uh, ammonia in there uh, over and above what the microbes can utilize. And then it has to go to the liver and be detoxified. And we can run into some ammonia toxicity in, the, in that respect. So, uh, uh, like I say, the uh, energy will help with that. Now, that said, a lot of our prepared supplements like molasses blocks and lick wheels and so forth like that, they have uh, a significant amount of urea in them. And just, just by, by the nature of the carrier, they have a lot of sugars in there. And that's the reason that they match those urea with those sugars, because the, the sugars help the, uh, you know, like in the form of molasses or whatever, they, they help the, the uh, urea to be utilized. And so uh, typically rule of thumb, if you go back into the, to the literature, uh, you know, in the cow calf area, there's, there's some, some data that came out of, you know, like Kansas state, some was done when I was there was uh, uh, you know, you can use upwards of 25, 30% of the degradable protein uh, can come from, from urea, but it sure can't be all of it. Uh, you could use up to that 25, 30% without having an appreciable decrease in performance, you know, like body weight 
gains and body condition scores and so forth in the cows. Um, uh, you know, animals uh, that are on a higher energy diet, you could probably push that limit some, but but we have to use it as a tool and it, and it will help reduce the cost uh, in a lot of cases. It, of course, that's dynamic. It depends on the cost of the urea and it depends on the cost of what you're comparing it to, you know, on a protein for protein basis, whether you're talking about the price of canola meal in the Pacific Northwest or whether we're talking about price of uh uh, alfalfa hay or or whatever you'd like to use for for your source of protein so uh, but it, there's there's times when when you can save a bit of money some some of the old uh, so some of the older rules of thumb would be you know at the inclusion of say 15 percent of the degradable protein in in uh, 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 as urea could, you know, maybe save you in the neighborhood of five to eight percent on the cost of of the supplement. Uh, at a higher inclusion rate, that might be ten to twelve percent. Uh, that, but it just kind of depends on what the price of your of your uh, your natural protein source is compared with the price of urea. Right. Uh, I'm guessing there may be some people listening whether ranchers or or non-ranchers that have not used nutrient requirement tables before uh i happen to have in the office a copy of the nrc manual but i don't know how widely those are available are are there uh, online uh, nutrient requirement tables that you could recommend that folks can use Absolutely. If you if you just Google up nutrient requirements of beef cattle, there's a lot of extension fact sheets from various universities that contain excerpts from like the beef cattle NRC or the nutrient requirements of uh, beef cattle, uh, the government publication. But there should be plenty of things out there. And then there's also if you Google nutrient requirements of beef cattle, You'll also get some hits for some nutrient requirement calculators. And so and those are really handy for producers because you can plug in what feeds you want to use and and uh, and the class of livestock that you've got. And and you can uh, uh, get outputs uh, both both from. Uh, both as to if you're meeting those requirements and if the costs of the of your ingredients are are in your in your feed tables uh it'll also give you a cost comparison one of them uh is the classic one is the oklahoma state university calculator uh and and it's it's a good one uh the noble foundation from oklahoma has has a a, a cow nutrition calculator for cow-calf operators and of course you know uh you just have to make sure that the feeds that you're using are included in the in the in the feed table and some of them have the have the ability to add feeds to them uh the oklahoma state versions they they have they're an excel spreadsheet based uh calculator and so you can actually add feeds <laughs> Match and so there. Yes. Yeah. Yes. You can you can put your own 
feeds and own and and update your prices and everything. And so so those are really nice tools. And of course, you and I as extension people, we're more than happy to to help uh, producers learn how to learn how to run them and uh, and uh, help them become self-sufficient, help producers to become self-sufficient on how to make those uh, things work and how to make those decisions. You bet. Uh, one more question. Uh, it was, it was one possibility for evaluating nutrient uh, needs is body condition score. You know, we can talk about book values and forage test values, but uh, the 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 final test is how the animal actually does. Is body condition scoring a decent way of evaluating whether the animals are getting what they need, or is the lag time too long between what you feed and how the animals do for that to be useful in real time? No, I, I think that body condition scoring is is definitely useful, and it's something that that is simple and and producers can easily implement into their herds. Now that said, body condition scoring isn't necessarily tied to some absolute standard. And what I mean by that is is that if you score your cow's tip at at uh, and you have an average body condition score of five point five in your herd, and then your neighbor down the road scores theirs, and they have a, a body condition score average in their herd of 6.2, uh, it may just be that you look at them a little bit differently. Okay. So, so, uh, just because you think yours is five and the neighbors is, is a low six is not a problem, but what, which, what you need to do is you need to, to get, um, the, uh, uh body condition scoring, pictures and descriptions and so forth and do your best in in getting getting a handle on what what the body condition score that is that's going to be your goal and we typically say a body condition score five on a one to nine scale is a is about optimum for uh for cows that uh uh you know when they uh come around to calving time now that said, we don't typically feed cows to be a body condition score five or better all year round because we know that our beef cows are resilient and they can cycle weight, right? So, so we we expect that those cows are going to lose some weight as or lose I'm sorry lose some body condition and and the associated weight with the body condition as as those calves drag them down into the late summer uh and early fall but the the silver lining in the whole thing is is that we can get some really very efficient body condition score gains in the post weeding period before the weather gets tough in the winter and so so we can get those cows to build that back up and still meet our goal of say a 5 or a little better by calving time, if if we appropriately feed those cows and and supplement them, and so forth, and so, but you know it's been shown way back that there's there's a uh, really solid link between body condition score and reproductive performance in those cows, and 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 when when I'm thinking about body condition score, 
I'm thinking about dividing up cows if it's possible. Not every operation, it's possible to do this just based on facilities and management and so forth. But if you've, if you've got cattle that are at risk for reproductive failure because they're on a little on the thin side, then it's good to, to, to handle those cattle a little differently with a little bit better nutrition than, than our old or mature middle-aged cows that are pretty resilient. For example, our two and three-year-old cows, I think we talked about this the last time I was on the podcast with you, our two and three-year-old cows are at the greatest risk for reproductive failure, right? Because because they're still trying to grow, they're trying to nurse the calf, it all comes back to that biological priority for the nutrients, you know? the the last thing to happen is reproduction and it's the first thing you lose because they're they're trying to grow and they're trying to nurse the calf and they're doing everything they can uh to make that calf grow and so so uh it, it's it's uh it's those cattle that are at the greatest risk uh uh that probably need the extra extra groceries uh at those critical times. And because like we were talking earlier, you know, we get such a huge investment in, in, uh, in these young cows before they ever have a calf. And so every, every one of those that we can get, get into their, their fourth year or fifth year or whatever to where that they're actually mature cows and, 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 and really fit, fit into the herd as mature uh, you know, that, that's a, that's a big deal because, uh, we don't, we don't want to have to call and, and lose, lose that investment. I mean, we get, re- recover some of it when you have to call, but you, you never quite get it all back, you know? Yeah, that's interesting. I was in a conversation a few years ago with a wildlife biologist and we were discussing, uh, the potential for the winter to be a bottleneck. And then my assumption was that winter was the primary bottleneck for the, uh, the health of these, uh, we we're talking about elk, elk populations. And, and he said, he said, it's actually more whether we had a good summer that determines whether or not the animals uh, do well and make it through the winter, both in terms of individual survival, as well as, uh, you know, calving success. That if the animals go into a really hard winter, in in good condition, following a summer that had favorable forage conditions, uh, they generally do just fine. You know, conversely, you could have a relatively mild winter, but if the animals go in with low body condition as a result of you know droughty conditions or some other kind of stress through the year, uh, that they tend to not do so well and you have quite a lot of both mortality and morbidity and low reproductive success. Uh, but I, you know, my assumption was that uh, wintertime conditions, particularly cold weather and high snow cover where the animals can't eat much uh, or have less available to them during the winter would be the primary limiting factor. And that's not so much the case. It's primarily what body condition score they go into the winter with. Yeah, I, I expect that's true, and 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 it and it stands to reason. That's why we see see uh, uh, when we have a good fall, we see 
the next spring, a lot of, a lot of our deer with twins and so forth, they probably are doing better, have a better ovulation and so forth. So uh, we will post a few more uh, key articles on epigenetics and fetal programming in the show notes. Uh, for those who have not been listening for a while, the show notes are accessible uh, both on the SoundCloud website or the SoundCloud plugin on the artofrange.com website. Uh, but the show notes are maybe even more accessible inside of your podcasting app. Uh, on an iPhone, that would be on, on podcasts uh, or in Stitcher. You can see the show notes in there and those links are all in there. I also want to mention that if you have questions or comments related to an episode, uh, please email them to show at artofrange.com and we'll address them on the air. Uh, Don, thanks for tuning in again. Uh, any, any final comments? I, I just appreciate the opportunity to come on and, and uh, visit uh, with you and, and, uh, and hopefully provide some, something that's useful for our producers. And that's what it's all about, uh, that we're here to serve. So, and I know you are too. So I, I just appreciate the opportunity. Thanks again. Thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast. You can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. Just search for Art of Range. If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at artofrange.com. For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona and funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture. Thank you.